Hey there. And I bet if you listen through all the episodes of this show of Night School, it's probably just awful how similar the beginning of each episode is. You know, hey there, welcome to Night School. Hey there, welcome. You know, I bet if you were to cycle through, it's just me saying that almost identical intros to every show, but that's kind of how it goes. I was watching, I don't know what it was. It was somebody I kind of like, kind of pay attention to, was on somebody's YouTube show being interviewed, and the guy doing the interviewing was, I don't know who he was. He had long hair and glasses and guitars all over the place, but the guy he was interviewing wasn't a musician, so I don't know who he was if this guy comes. He's probably like some music producer I've never heard of. Who knows? But uh, I just I started watching the beginning and the guy's intro. He was like, "Hey, hey, hey!" You know, and I was like, "Is that what I is that what I'm like?" You know, I had this moment where just the way the guy did his intro, I was just like, "Is that what my is that what listening to my show is like?" <laughs> it was this very zany, "Hey, hey, hey! Well, welcome to the show." You know, I don't even know what he said, but it was just that sort of thing. Uh, and I was just, I immediately thought about myself in in just this. I wouldn't say out of out of narcissism, out of just, I mean, I was afraid. I was afraid that that's what I sound like to somebody. But I realized I, I hit 300 episodes. I didn't realize that was the 300th episode until I was uploading it. And you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't even make a difference at this point. To me, this is like a daily radio show. While it's not every day necessarily, I kind of think of this show like any kind of morning radio talk show, except it's on whenever you want it to be on. But that's how I kind of see it. You know, I'm not one of these people who who thinks like, oh, you know, I'm going to do my weekly podcast. I'm going to upload it on Saturday night. Hey, 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 it's Saturday night. You know, And then the thing about those shows, the thing that I, I don't like about, I mean, it's not that I don't like it, but the thing that kind of takes me out of those shows is that they're often even just a few days out of date. And I feel like podcasts need to be as current as possible, like even if it's not about current events, like I did a couple nights ago, uh, but even if it's not just about current events, I feel like when you notice, like when you're listening to a show and you realize that it's even like a few days or a week or two weeks, I mean, some of them you'll be listening to them and they'll, they'll be talking about a major event that happened a month ago or weeks ago. And it immediately takes you out. It's almost like it's out of sync. It's almost like when you hear a sound that's out of sync. Or, or like when you hear, when you're talking to somebody uh, through like an online service and there's a, a, a delay. There's a delay in like they hear you and there's a little bit of a delay in their response. It's almost a similar feeling you get when you're listening to a show and you realize that it was pre-recorded days, weeks a month ago, you know, something about that. Sometimes, I mean, of course, like it doesn't matter in the long run. If it's a good show, it's a good show. If it's a good episode, it's a good episode. But it's important for me with this show to put these up as soon as possible. You know, every once in a while, I'll, if it's really late, maybe I'll wait until the morning. But I kind of, I think of this show as, as more like a, a morning radio talk show. And for that reason, who cares how many number, you know, I should, I should have never started numbering night school episodes. Hey, hey, hey. No, but I, I never should have started numbering night school. I mean, does Rush Limbaugh, did he number his episodes? I don't think so. 
I mean, maybe he did. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea if Rush Limbaugh numbered his episodes. I mean, he was just a, a daily radio talk show host. Did Rush Limbaugh number his episodes? This is the 1,000th Rush Limbaugh episode. This is the 100,000th Rush Limbaugh. I didn't even know he died. I found out he died like days later because, you know, like liberal friends of mine were talking about it, like saying, roast in heck. Roast in heck, Rush. It's funny, though. When I started this show, what I said is I wanted this show to be Rush Limbaugh meets Wolfman Jack. I said that publicly. I think I made a Facebook post when I first announced this show, and I said, I want this show to be Rush Limbaugh meets Wolfman Jack. Not because those are my radio heroes. I mean, I've never even heard Wolfman Jack. Like, my entire experience with Wolfman Jack is he's in American Graffiti, right? I think he does a cameo, or they, I don't even, I don't know if it's the real Wolfman Jack. I don't, I don't even know when the real Wolfman Jack lived. What movies is he in? He's in some movie. I want to say it's American Graffiti, but I, I'm thinking he might have been dead by then, too. So I don't even know. I don't even know what I'm talking about. But just as sort of like a, a jokey tag line, I was like, welcome to every night's a school night. Rush Limbaugh meets Wolfman Jack. And at the time, you could joke about that. You know, at the, at the time, you could say you want your podcast to be like Rush Limbaugh to anybody. I mean, I remember pe- like friends of mine laughing at that, and who I feel like wouldn't laugh at that anymore. Rush Limbaugh is poison, people. Rush Limbaugh has poisoned people's minds. You can't joke about your show being like his, because it's so much like him, obviously. I'm so much like him. Obviously, I'm not, because I number my episodes. But yeah, 300, I mean, at this point, it's just, it's almost embarrassing that I, I'm to 300. Normally, it's a point of pride. You'll hear a podcast, you'll hear an episode where they're like, we're, this is our 300th episode and we're celebrating. And normally I would do that, but now it's getting kind of embarrassing that these come out at the rate they do. But it's not embarrassing because I'm reframing this show as a morning talk radio show. You know, I announced a couple months ago that this was going to be the new daily show. Well, it's also going to be the new morning talk radio show. It's both. And in my opening news piece here, my vape ran out. You know, my friend gave me a vape, and it ran out tonight. Baby's first vape ran out. And my very first thought was, I need to go get another one. My very first thought was, maybe I should go get another one right now. And uh, I was like, Noah, you know, I might get another one. I might go get another one, but I'm going to wait. I really did enjoy having it, though. I have no interest in cigarettes. I have no interest in chewing tobacco. I have no interest in dipping. I did for a few days. I mentioned that on here, where there were a couple days there just out of nowhere. Like, having not had tobacco in an extremely long amount of time and having never been addicted, like a week or two ago, I, was, I kept thinking, maybe I should go buy a pack of cigarettes or maybe I should just go get some, some dip or, or Nick Mints. But uh, having that vape ended up being exactly what I was looking for. And I wasn't using it all day. You know, I wasn't using it all day, but I was finding that in my downtime, I was hitting it a lot. I mean, if you listen to the last couple episodes, you hear there's, there's all kinds of vape interludes. You hear that little crackle. And then the, the sound of smoke being blown on the mic. 
that atmospheric effect of smoke hitting the mic. But yeah, my immediate thought was I need to go get another one. And I, right now I want one. I'm not craving the, I'm not craving the sensation, or I'm not craving the, um, the feeling it gives me. But I do want one in my hand. You know, it's very much for me, I mean, for example, like back when I used to smoke tons of weed, when I was, you know, in my late teens, through most of my 20s, you know, I, I definitely every day, if not pretty much any time I, I, I had the time and space to smoke pot, I was doing it. And it wasn't even so much the getting high that I liked. It was just kind of, you know, smoking it. I, I genuinely enjoyed, I mean, people call that oral fixation, but I also like just having something in my hand. I mean, for the same reason that, like, I, I do not feel right if I don't have a drink in my hand. You know, just a drink, any kind of drink. Like, uh, I, I make, I brew iced tea continuously, as I've probably mentioned on here. You know, the the raspberry, uh, yeah, what's it called? Oh, man, I'm forgetting what the name of the, the flavor is. Um, God, I should remember it. It's, it's my thing. But anyway, you know, I, I brew this kind of fruit-flavored tea, especially this raspberry tea. And so I, I'm not comfortable if I don't have a bottle of that, you know, my own, my own uh, plastic bottles, my baby bottles, baby's first vape, but not baby's first bottle of iced tea. But right now I have a glass because the bottles are in the dishwasher. This is just a real practical down-home episode. Um, but, uh, no, uh, I, I'm not comfortable if I don't have a glass of something in front of me. And that was my problem with alcohol, too. You know, I think more than just, I mean, granted, I would get blackout drunk all the time. But, you know, more than that, I just liked having a drink in front of me. And uh, it's the same thing with just, you know, any drink. I mean, when I was a little kid, I continuously had some kind of drink. It's just, and then I wonder why I have to go to the bathroom so much. You know, I'm always thinking, oh, I have something wrong with my kidneys. I have something wrong with my bladder. I can't go a half hour without going to the bathroom. And even in the interim, I feel like I have to go. Like I see those TV commercials sometimes that are for, they're for older men who have some sort of, I don't know what it is. I can't remember what it's called, but basically incontinence. Is that what it is? I don't know if that's what it is. But basically they have to piss all the time. They're commercials for old men who have to piss all the time. And whenever I see those, I become anxious because I'm just like, I'm worried that that's me. Like I just, I'm at the point where like, you know, I don't like to talk about bathroom stuff, but I'm at the point where if I'm hanging out with somebody, I just let them know I have to go to the bathroom all the time. I'm like a girl. Like I have to go to the bathroom all the time. I mean, if I go on long walks, I'm continuously looking for a bathroom. And girls always say, like, oh, I wish I was a guy so I could just go. You can go anywhere. The truth is you can't. I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm pee shy. I have to go to the bathroom all the time, but I'm pee shy. And, I mean, I think if you go back, uh, that might be the very first night school episode or second or third. One of the first few night school episodes is about my pee shyness. Back when I only did half hour long night schools once in a while. I talked all about pee shyness, which is the only time I'll say pee. I don't say pee normally, but I will say pee shyness because piss shyness, you're trying too hard to sound macho if you say piss shyness because you should humiliate yourself. Because, I mean, the thing is, if, if you use the word pee and you're a man, it's humiliating. I have to go pee. I have to go pee. Humiliation. 
but if you're pee shy and it, and you're admitting it, that should be an act of self humiliation. I have no problem humiliating myself by saying I'm pee shy. But in, in addition to being pee shy, just the reality is you can't just go anywhere. Like I can't just dip into a bush while there's cars driving by. You know, I just can't do that. No matter how bad I have to go, it's just. If there's people around, I mean, there are very few places, even in Washington. I mean, because I have to remember that, that I live in a place where it's actually much more convenient to find a place to go here than almost anywhere else in the world. You know, anywhere else in the civilized world. Because we have woods all over the place, and that does make it easy because I can, you know, I can sometimes find some woods to go into. But it's not everywhere. And if I'm walking, you know, near town... It's not like it's that easy, which is why I love porta potties. As disgusting as they are, I love the sight of them. I love it when they don't lock them up, because some they have them at construction sites, but sometimes they'll lock them up at night. And I understand, like I mean, junkies, he, especially around here, will shoot up in them. There's always there's always someone's dumped some kind of filth in there. They're nasty places, but they're I mean, I'll take a nasty place. You know, as a pee-shy guy, as a pee-shy guy, I'll take a nasty place over no place. Anyway, I've talked about all that before, as, I, as I've talked about everything before. i got to stop saying that. i got to stop saying, oh, I've talked about this before, because who cares? Who cares? Just like the number of episodes, who cares? We're just going. We're just going now. Not in a... Unlike a, a pee-shy guy, we're just going. But yeah, no, I think I might wait a week and maybe get that vape. We'll see how long I last. And maybe I won't want one. But yeah, I don't feel like I'm craving it. I don't feel like I'm addicted to the nicotine. And I think it's a, it's a small amount. You know, I think it's a fairly small amount of nicotine. But I don't feel like I'm craving the nicotine. I don't feel like I've made myself addicted this quickly. But I did enjoy having it. And maybe I should look, I mean, because what's the downside? I mean, aside from the money of buying buying those, uh, you know, I mean, I know, the thing is, too, if I were to look up the downside of using a, a nicotine vape, I would just find all kinds of horror. There would just be all kinds of online horror that would make me freak out. And I already have lung issues. I already have esophagus issues. You know, is the best thing for me to be vaping nicotine? I don't know. Probably not. I mean, definitely not. But the truth is, I want it. And, it's, and it, it seems relatively harmless to me at this moment. But I also feel like I should, I should show some restraint for at least a few days, at least a week. If I'm going to get into that, I should allow myself a, a waiting period. And I think I can do that with nicotine. I mean, somebody who's addicted to nicotine would say otherwise, but I mean, I think I can do that because it doesn't get me high. Because, you know, when I'm into smoking weed, especially when I was younger, I I couldn't have any downtime. Like, I couldn't have any time without it. If I'm into it, I'm into it, and I want it. And and not all day. Like, I I can go all day without it, but it's like, I'm not going to take any break, quote-unquote, breaks from it if I'm in the mode of wanting it. And, uh, I've had that experience, I don't know, I haven't had that experience with a lot of things, but some things. 
but I am feeling like, hey, you know, I, I kind of wished it, because I saw it, it, it had a little light on it, and the light blinked in a very strange way, letting me know it was dying. It was like it was waving goodbye, just this little blinking light, because the, the light, you know, goes on when you're puffing on it, and it's a continuous light. When you're puffing on it and it's full, it has this continuous light, but when it's letting you know it's empty, the cute little, uh, I don't even remember its name, the the uh, peach ice puff flow, yeah, that's what it was. It's like remembering the name of uh, an old friend, you know, the, now, just a couple hours later, it's it's like an old friend that I barely remember, but... Yeah, as it's letting you know it's out, the light the light blinks on and off, and then it just stops, and then your your pen's dead. And it was sad. It was a little bit sad because I, I was planning on using it all night. But I think it's good. I'll I'll wait a little bit. I'll give it a little waiting period and see how I feel. I just I, I definitely don't feel like I got it out of my system. Is all. Anyway, I noticed this is going to be a really mundane episode because I, I noticed uh, gas prices are going down slightly. <laughs> uh, it's funny how I've, I've been obsessed. Like, I, I don't, you know, obviously gas prices are important to me. You know, it's not like I have money to burn on, like, on gas. And uh, so, of course, I care about, like, I love it when gas prices are low. When they got down to, like, $2 something last fall I was very happy you know even though I haven't been driving much you know even though I haven't I don't drive a ton in the last year uh, I was still like it was very nice it was very exciting to be able to get gas for that cheap and then as they've shot up I was watching it grow and then it became like a pressure meter and I even talked about that on here recently I talked about how as I started to notice this just tone of hostility in the air where I just, I went downtown and I, I, I left. I, I went downtown and I just had to get away because I, I was like, there's so much hostility in the air. Not even specific people, it's just in the air. I was just feeling this energy in the air. And then I was noticing as I started to f- feel this hostility in the air, I was noticing gas prices going up. And not that I think there's an actual correlation, although not that there's not too. You know, because people having to pay more. I mean, that's one of those things that will piss everybody off. Everybody who drives a car their day is made a little bit worse when they when they know they have to get gas and they see that gas prices are going up so it's it's one of those things that does add to the the overall dissatisfaction of life that people experience you know when you see that gas prices have gone up like uh, almost a dollar i think and uh so I, I and I, I live right next to a gas station, not right next to it, but down the street. And so, like every time I go by this gas, I live next to a gas station. I don't. I, I'm lying. <laughs> don't don't believe me if I ever say that again because I'm lying. I don't live next to a gas station. I live down the street from a gas station. And uh, you have to you have to make a couple turns and then go down a street if you really want the the details. But I've been going by it a lot and I've been seeing it go up. And I've been feeling like more hostility in the air. And it's almost like a meter. It's almost like a gauge. It's almost like in my mind, the gas prices became a meter for determining how hostile everything is. And then sure enough, like right when I kind of started thinking that way is when these shootings happen, which I won't talk about again. Seems like people are already done talking about them. So why should I talk about them, right? Um, But, uh, you know, as... 
that happened. And then now I've noticed them gradually going down. I've noticed that since those two shootings happened, like the first shooting happened and I noticed that gas went down a cent. I've gotten crazy. I've ne- I was never somebody who paid attention to this. Yeah, I can tell if gas has gone up or down, but I was never somebody who was like, did you know gas went down a cent? Did you know gas went down a cent? <laughs> I've never been somebody who pays attention to like gas going down by a cent or, or looking at the gas prices every day like a freak. I've never been that person, but I am that person now. But I noticed after the first shooting, gas prices went down a cent. And then when the next shooting happened, I noticed that they went down like three cents, like three cents. And in my mind, it's because it's like the pressure built and and boiled over the top, like hostility boiled over the top into this violence. And then gas prices went down, the meter went down. And so I feel like, you know, while I don't want to get psychotic about this, you know, if I start to see gas prices going up again, I might worry that things are boiling over again and something might happen. Although it's so strange about that violence, you know, these highly publicized violent events is like there's so much violence that goes on normally and it isn't really reported in the news. Like there's a lot of shootings in cities where like one person dies and several people get hit. It's strange how that doesn't get reported, you know, and you can read into why or why not. But uh, there is a lot more violence uh, than than makes the headline news. Um, but, uh, so it's not that, so it's like, like choosing these particular events to be like, oh, it, the, the tension boiled over into these violent events when in reality there's violence going on all the time and it has nothing to do with gas prices. There's no correlation. I'm just insane. No, I feel like there is some weird correlation. I feel like the gas prices are a meter. I feel like they are a gauge. They're a gauge of some kind. But uh, anyway, enough about gas prices. You know, I was thinking about something like, uh, it's funny, like, because I talk on this show a lot about when I'm having a down period, how I refer to that as catabasis, you know, that sort of, if not voluntary, at least in a, a self-aware descent into the abyss. And I don't think in terms of depression, I don't... I've decided not to think, it's not even that I've decided, I just feel like what's natural to me is to not think in terms of these psychological words, these psychological diagnoses. Like instead of thinking about a depression, I think it's more helpful to refer to it as catabasis. Not that catabasis and depression are interchangeable, although I think depression can fit into an idea like catabasis. I don't think it is completely synonymous. I think catabasis is something far larger and more expansive, which is why I prefer it. And I I think it's sort of a a self-aware descent. It doesn't mean you necessarily chose it, because I I, honestly, I would never choose. Well, it's nice to have down moments. It's nice to have low energy times where you do just rest, because I'm someone who doesn't rest much. But it's nice to have moments where you do rest, periods where you do rest, but I don't think I would ever choose to have a downtime where I feel down. But when you do, I think it's good to kind of frame it in a way that you know is helpful or necessary, which to me has become, over the last few years, when I recognize myself feeling that way, I say, oh, I'm entering catabasis, 
which you can look that up, look up catabasis. And interestingly, catabasis, it not just refers to kind of a descent into the underworld or the abyss, sometimes with the intent of retrieving something. I'd have to look up, I don't know if it was used in, I don't know if it's used in Greek mythology, I don't, I don't know what the origin of the idea is, but it shows up in mythology and spirituality. I think it's a versatile idea. You know, I think it can fit, uh, which is why I would never say that it's synonymous with depression or any particular emotional state. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's pretty expansive, but I'm not sure if it's always associated with retrieving something or, or a specific goal, but the idea always involves some sort of descent into the abyss, into the underworld. And then the opposite of catabasis is anabasis, which is the ascent. And I think every time you find yourself going into a catabasis, you have to look for the opportunity to start ascending, which is the anabasis. You got to have both. You got to balance out the catabasis with the anabasis. And the reality of going through an anabasis is you also know there will eventually be a catabasis, even if it just means being low energy. You know, it might not necessarily be a down emotional period. It might not necessarily be a bad time. And in fact, if you start thinking it, thinking of it in terms of catabasis, I find that you kind of dissociate from words like bad or sad or other words that make you feel gloomy or doomy. Sad, bad, gloomy, doomy. You know, you start to kind of dissociate from those sorts of sensations and see it as part of something larger. Because that's, I think, the idea, is that you do see it as something larger because you see it as a process. And it's funny because you don't think of a process as large because you're usually in it. You're usually, like, a process is something where you're focused on an individual step or an individual moment in that process. And you tend to think of the end result as the big thing, but it's actually the process that's much larger. The process is the much longer and larger thing that you go through, and if you even reach an end result in anything you, in anything you do, that's actually the smallest part of it all. And I think when it comes to your life, you know, ideas like catabasis, anabasis, seeing that as a process that you will endlessly go through, Like when I'm on a real high, I mean, I go through periods where I'll, this phrase will kind of come into my head where I'm like, nothing could break my stride. And, and it's not an arrogant thing. It's not like nothing can. It's just that I'm not going to let anything break my stride. And when I'm feeling that way, that's kind of when I will go up to a crosswalk, you know, not, not a crosswalk that changes with the light, with the little, you know, glowing man letting you know it's okay to walk. I'm talking like when there's crosswalks in the middle of a busy street and cars have to stop for you. They have to deliberately be good humans and stop for the pedestrian who needs to cross. And most of them don't. But in those situations, if I'm kind of in, you know, if I'm kind of ascending or I've ascended and I'm on kind of a plateau, I have a lot of momentum. I'm feeling like nothing can break my stride. I will just walk right out into the crosswalk, and not in a suicidal, stupid way, but I will make very deliberate eye contact with drivers 
and I will walk out there to let them know I'm walking and I'm not going to throw myself in front of a car. Like I said, I'm not stupid, but it's like, I will make the steps out there. I will make bold steps, bold, confident steps out into that crosswalk. And I will look the drivers right in the eye and communicate to them. I'm walking. I know you think that you're bigger. I know you think right now might is right because you're in a big armored thing, whatever that is, whatever you think your car is. You think it's an extension of your body because it feels like it because you're unconsciously moving this big thing. It feels like it's you. You're so used to driving it. And because you think that thing's you, you're going to be way more audacious than you would ever be if you and I were just on the street together. And so you're not going to stop for me. And not out of cruelty. You know, that's the thing about people who don't stop is it's not because they're trying to be mean or cruel. Like some people are. Some people are just like, screw everybody. I'm in it for me. I don't stop for pedestrians. Some people do have that attitude. But a lot of people just think somebody else will stop. Somebody else will let them through. Oh, I got to get, I want to get where I'm going. I don't want to stop. Maybe they don't even think about it. You know, some people don't see you. I mean, that happens to me. I'll be driving along and I don't see that there's a pedestrian waiting to cross until it's cutting it very close. I don't want to slam on my brakes. I always feel bad. But, you know, it's not like I expect everybody to stop always or everybody to see you. But most people do see you. And they don't stop. But, yeah, when I'm in that mindset, though, I will just step out there. Not because I'm such a tough guy. Oh, yeah. If a car tries to crash into me right now, it's going to crumple. They call me the car crumpler because if, if I walk out into a crosswalk when I'm feeling good, I crumple cars that try to hit me. No, of course not. But I will just kind of communicate to them. But, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it just it, you tend to assert yourself more when you're feeling that way. Whereas when you're in a catabasis, I think sometimes you just kind of go, it's not even passivity. It's not even being passive. It's just kind of like, choosing your battles in that moment. Like when you're already in the underworld, when you've entered the abyss, knowing it's temporary too, it's like you don't want to tangle with ghouls. You don't want to waste your time tangling with every little thing that comes up. So it's like, you know what? I'm not going to assert myself and boldly walk through the crosswalk. I mean, first of all, because I'm not, you know, I, I don't, my shoulders aren't as high. My chin isn't as high. Not that I'm feeling down emotionally, but just like I'm a little lost in my thoughts. And that's not a good place to be in when you're needing to assert yourself, especially against cars. I don't know why this, this is a weird example. I was thinking about it earlier, though, just how like people won't stop for you. And that's such a common, as a pedestrian, as someone who walks a lot, it's interesting that People just don't stop. And sometimes you can tell you really piss them off when you assert yourself, even though you have the full right to do it. Even though as a pedestrian, you have the right of way. It's interesting the sort of feeling you get from some people. Some people give you a little wave. I mean, I give, the thing is, if somebody stops for me and they do it in a way where I can tell they're being nice, or even if they're, if they're just, because I mean, some people like will creep on you. They'll stop for you, but they start to creep on you and they don't get away from me. And there's other people where just some way or another, they kind of communicate that they're pissed off that they have to stop for you. Even though I should wave at them, like sometimes I don't. 
but I try to, I, you know, I try to acknowledge people and say, you did, not, you, you did a nice thing. Thank you. That's it. We're not married. This doesn't mean we're married. Because you stopped for me as a, I was a pedestrian and I needed to cross this busy street and you stopped for me and that means we're married. Yes, even if you're a man, it means we're gay married now. I think that's how some people feel. I think some people, like when they feel like they have to stop for a pedestrian, they feel like they just got forced into an arranged marriage. You know, they're like, oh my God, now I'm married to this guy. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what they feel. That's how I feel. As a driver, when I stop for somebody, the reason I voluntarily stop for people is because I'm looking for a wife. And when I slow down and stop, that means we're married. So if you're a beautiful girl at a crosswalk, be careful, because if I stop for you, it means we're married. I'm not going to do anything creepy. I'm not going to do anything untoward. Untoward? I don't think I've ever said that. Untoward? Untoward? I'm not going to do anything unwelcome. But it means we're we're married, you know, and that's cool. You know, it means that we have married each other because I stopped for you. Now, that's one of those things, going back to the catabasis idea where... Yeah, you know, knowing that you're entering to this, you know, I mean, there's always something a little bit voluntary to it, I feel like. You know, even if it doesn't feel like I made a choice to go down, to descend, there's always a part of me that does feel like it's a little bit voluntary. Even if circumstances, situations have made it happen, even if there's no reason at all, and I'm just not feeling well. I always kind of feel like I have some choice in the matter and that I'm choosing to go down a few rungs. What's really interesting, though, is honestly, I'd say in the past month, I felt the worst I felt in a long time. You know, I crashed hard. Like, you know, the beginning of this year, I just unbelievable momentum, unbelievable energy. And, uh, you know, the end of February, it was just it culminated in building that darn website. It culminated in building my new website and staying up all night to do it and just getting it done in a really short amount of time just to get it done. And then that just led, it was like I was doing all kinds of creative things and then I just crashed very hard and I've been recovering ever since. And honestly, yeah, I felt the worst. You know, I've had the more insomnia than I've had in a very long time. I've you know, just felt less motivated than I felt in a very long time. And, uh, not not really a bad attitude. Not not sad really, but definitely something not good. The worst I felt in a long time. I think that's the best way I could put it. And it's funny that the word catabasis didn't even enter my brain, because every time this every time I start to feel that, I think, oh, I'm entering a catabasis, and you suddenly become aware. You suddenly become aware. It's almost like you you find out you have a mission. To me, when I recognize that I'm entering catabasis, it's almost like I remind myself, oh yeah, you're on a mission. Even though this might be what some would consider low energy, but it's not like I'm not doing anything. It's not like I'm not doing anything with my mind. And, you know, the mission changes. The intermission, the internal mission 
like the mission changes is kind of how I, I feel when I recognize that I've entered catabasis. And you do ascend eventually. If you look for the opportunities to ascend, you'll find them. It's almost like some video game where it's like you have to find the way out of the dungeon. And it's hidden. Or it randomly appears. I don't even know what game that would be. I feel like there's some game I played where like the exit from the dungeon randomly appears in a different place every time. And that's kind of what Anabasis is like. It's like the exit from the dungeon. and Because Catabasis is going into the dungeon. And I mean, that's another just another example from RPGs of how old RPGs are like life. Where I never enjoyed going into dungeons. Like, my favorite part about old Super Nintendo RPGs, PlayStation RPGs, was exploring the world, going to villages. But the dungeons were necessary. And it's not that I didn't enjoy the way they looked. It's not like they weren't cool. Because, I mean, there's always something cool, pivotal that happens in the story when you enter a dungeon. You know, they're necessary. And that's what I realized as, as a kid, you know, where I would rent RPGs. Like, the first time I played Final Fantasy two, you know, later known as f- f- 5. I guess originally known as 5, and then it was called 2 here for Americans. But the old... Uh, the first Final Fantasy they made for Super Nintendo, I rented that, and I was playing other people's saves, and other people had already practically beaten the game, so I was able to explore the entire world in the airship and visit all the little villages, and I was this little kid. I was like seven years old, and I was just like, what is this game? It looks like Zelda. It looks like Legend of Zelda, but it's, there's more characters, and it's more colorful, and you can go to all these villages and fly around and there's castles and, and just different things. And I, I enjoyed doing that and I would do that. Like I, I think there were a couple of weekends where I just rented that game and I just went to random towns and talked to the villagers. But somebody else had already completed the entire story. So I didn't even know what the villagers, the villagers were talking about when they would say like, thank you for saving us. Thank you for saving us. I didn't even know the, the what the villagers were talking about when they said, uh, thank you for curing my pee-shyness. Well, I'm surprised that's not in an RPG. Like, you have to cure some boy's pee-shyness somehow. <laughs> oh, God. How do you do that? How do you do that without being an audiophile? How do you cure a young boy's pee-shyness for him without being an audiophile? I don't know. Without having to permanently go door to door, letting your neighbors know that an audiophile has moved into the neighborhood. Uh, how'd you become? How, how'd you get arrested for audiophilia? I cured a little boy of his pee shine. That's horrible, horrible joke. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you go to RP. You go to RPG villages. And, you know, when I was a kid and I'd play other people's saves when I would rent it before I even knew what they were. I didn't understand what they were. I didn't know what this game was. Like, you go into battles and there's a menu. It's not like you're going up to people swinging a sword at them. It's like, it's very, you know, while there is a visual element, it's like it was very abstract. Like, the idea of battles, random battles, they were all very abstract. Like, they just happen when you're walking around the world. You don't see the monsters approach. And then everybody's just static on each side of the screen and you choose to do something and your character does some like minimal movement 
and never actually touches the enemy. They just lift their sword up for a second, and it, and then you see numbers pop up on the enemy. Like as a little kid, you have no idea what that what's going on. And so just exploring the towns and going there was what I wanted to do. But I reached a point, like after renting it a couple times and doing that, where I was like, you know, I kind of want to play the story. I want to know what's going on. I want to do what you're supposed to do, basically. And so much of life ends up feeling that way. Oh, you know, I was off doing something else for so long. I kind of want to do what you're supposed to do now. I kind of did all this messed up stuff to myself. I, I thought this way for so long. I ate this way for so long. I kind of want to do what you're supposed to do now. That's kind of how my life has gone, where I'm like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying doing what I'm supposed to do at this point in my life. And I, but I had that experience in RPGs first, where I was like, I want to just play the story out from beginning to end now. And, uh, but doing that, it wasn't fun at first, because it's like you start out at, a, at an extremely low level, and as a kid, you don't really understand the strategy of like healing your characters. You don't want to grind. You don't want to grind to gain levels to beat the bosses. So it's kind of a chore. And then dungeons like are just nonstop random battles. And it's cool to find treasure, but you'll run into dead ends. And so you have to retrace your steps and there's more random battles. And then you, you, you fight a boss that's hard. You're constantly having to use all those precious potions that you bought. So it's not that fun. You know, it's not that fun to have to just grind your way through a dungeon, but it's necessary. And then usually the reward for getting through a dungeon is like, one, some sort of story, uh, a story event. But the other one is getting to go to a new village. That's usually what happens when you get through a dungeon is you get to go explore some new part of the world of the RPG world. So there's this reward system. And I don't think of life that way. Like, I don't think of... Like, I, you know, talking about, like, learning to do what you're supposed to do, sort of. Like, eating healthier. Not poisoning yourself with, you know, substances all the time. Thinking more positively. There's all these things that you kind of avoid because they seem cliche and you want to, you know, go down your own path and the people you admire kind of encourage you to do that maybe. I don't know, whatever it is. Your interests push you there. You gravitate in that way. Basically, you end up, you want to break the rules to figure out why the rules are valuable, but you don't want to break any rule that's so egregious that you can never recover. Or that somebody else can't recover. Because it's like you don't need to kill someone to find out why thou shalt not kill is one of the Ten Commandments. Like you don't need to screw your neighbor's wife to find out why that's one of the Ten Commandments. Although that's not as bad necessarily as killing somebody. Although that certainly will provoke somebody to kill somebody. You know, that that's one of the oldest stories ever told. Like any time I've had a friend who, who's been involved with a a girl who has a, a, a boyfriend or a husband, and, you know, I, I can't say I'm totally innocent in this regard. I'm not. I'm not going to go into detail, but I've been there before. I've, I've never cheated on a girlfriend. I've never been the cheater, but I've certainly been the other man before. 
And I think sometimes you have to go through that because I'm not a guy who likes to take another man's woman at all. I mean, as I've mentioned, I've slept with very few women. And uh, so I'm not some guy who's out there trying to steal people's wives or girlfriends, but life will present situations where it just feels right based on where you're at. And uh, it's not. It's, it's really not the right thing. And there's a reason why that is not just one of the Ten Commandments, but the Mafia even has a rule. The Mafia, even one of their rules is, and one of the rules that they actually enforce, because the Mafia has a lot of rules they don't enforce or that they look the other way, you know, or, or enforce subjectively. But one of their most time-honored rules is that if you mess around with another member's wife, we will kill you. And they've killed guys for that many times. They've also overlooked it sometimes, but they, they have killed many guys over that. You know, the Ten Commandments has that built in. And one of the things about that, one of the things about getting involved with your neighbor's wife, I've never been involved with my neighbor's wife, but uh, the, one, the thing about the neighbor's wife is somebody very well might die. Somebody very well might die in that situation. A brokenhearted husband might kill himself. He might kill his wife. He might kill you. He might kill all three of you. And that's the oldest story in the book. That is some, you're, When you break that rule, you are participating in something ancient that can go absolutely haywire in the scariest possible way. And fortunately, like the situation I was in, you know, at one point, it didn't end up that way. I don't think anybody ever knew. And I'll, I, I'm not even going to talk about it because I think, I think that's, it's dark. It's, it's some really dark stuff. And uh, when I've had friends who have told me about being involved in things like that, well, I don't judge them because I've been there, but I, I don't judge them. I'm far more judgmental of cheating on your significant other, but that's an important part of that story too because I had a friend who told me once, you're just as bad. Because I had tricked myself into thinking I'm not as bad because I'm not cheating. I'm single. If I'm a single man, what am I doing wrong? I just happen to be there. And I had a friend who told me, you're just as responsible and just as bad in that situation. And when she told me that, this was just a platonic friend of mine who told me that, I said, you are 100% right. I, I could not, it was, it was just, it resonated it, it hit me where I was just like, you're 100% right. I am just as responsible, even though I'm not betraying anybody. Because it's not like I, I was involved with one of my friend's girlfriends. It's not like I was involved with, you know, anybody who was really part of my life, you know, in, in any way. Uh, so it was just sort of this, well, what do I have to be guilty about? But deep down, it gave me severe anxiety. It made me paranoid. It made me do all. It made me feel all kinds of things that I just kind of you know shut out. And it wasn't. You could say it was a catabasis because I think that I ascended out of that situation and I learned a hell of a lot. And I think you can say a hell of. A hell of a lot when you're referring to catabasis, given that it's a descent into the abyss. So you can you can frame a situation a situation like that that way. But just to to bring it back out of this, I don't I don't mean I don't even mean to go into this stuff. 
uh, just to get it back to rules. I mean, there's a reason why that's one of the Ten Commandments. There's a reason why even the mafia tells you not to do that. <laughs> you know, there's a if even the mafia is telling you not to do that, you know, it's not good. And like even you know in Buddhism, you have um, you know there's a rule in in the Buddhist precepts about no sexual misconduct. And they're not talking about oh you have to be a monk. They're saying basically just don't sin. Don't commit a you know a romantic or a sexual sin. And uh, so it's it, you know all that stuff is built in, and there's many more rules, and they're all valuable. They're they're all valuable, but sometimes you don't know the value of them until you break them. You just have to hope that you don't break a rule so egregiously or break a rule that's just inherently so egregious that you can never recover and never learn from it. Because it's like, if you kill somebody and you break that rule, even if you get away from it, your soul is corrupted for the rest of this lifetime. And yeah, I'm not you know, there's situations like self-defense, there's different things where you might have to. But it's like, if you kill someone with evil intent, or any intent at all, like anything really except for self-defense... Your soul is corrupt, probably corrupted for the rest of this lifetime. I say probably because I don't really know. <laughs> you know, I'm not. I don't know. I don't. I don't know all the ins and outs of soul corruption, but I can tell you that's a big one. You know, the Buddhists obviously have that as well. I think that's the first precept in Buddhism: is not causing harm to any living being. And then, yeah, it gets into meat, where you can even say killing a plant is murder. But uh, you know, and I eat meat. So I harm, I guess, you know, I indirectly harm living beings. But there's a reason all those things are built in. There's a, there's a reason people have found those rules. But sometimes you have to go down into the dungeon to understand those rules. Sometimes you have to go into the dark. You have to go into the, the you have to enter a catabasis of some sort and break some rules there. But it's far better to enter a catabasis as the hero. Because the thing is, when you enter a dungeon as a villain, or even as some sort of ambivalent, you know, some morally ambiguous middle ground person when it comes to right and wrong, like even if you're trying to be an anti-hero, if you enter a dungeon and you're even trying to pretend to be a villain, you'll quickly, quickly realize that there's so many gosh darn villains there that Whatever you're trying to do is useless and you just become another villain in the dungeon. You just become another random battle for the actual hero to fight. So it's much better to enter the dungeon as a hero. Or someone who's just trying to be a hero for that matter. Because that's what RPGs are all about. And it's part of the transformation. I mean, Final Fantasy 2, a.k.a. 5... No, it's four. Excuse me, I misspoke. See, because I grew up playing Final Fantasy two, so the fact that it was, it turned out it was actually Final Fantasy four in Japan, it never stuck with me because I just always knew it as two. And whenever I've replayed it, I've always replayed it on an emulator, so uh, it's still two. Still two. I'm just a pea shy guy who still calls Final Fantasy four Final Fantasy two. But, uh, you know, that game was profound to me because it's, you know, the, the main character is a dark knight at the beginning. And then he becomes a paladin. And he doesn't look nearly as cool. 
Like you start out where you're not really, it turns out you're in the service of a bad guy, but you think you're a hero as the Dark Knight and you've been doing some bad things. And so it's this, you know, you know, it's really, it's, it's the Jungian shadow. I mean, the Jungian shadow relates closely to all of this, of course. It's not like he invented the idea. He just had a really amazing way of describing it. And uh, But uh, in Final Fantasy 2, it's like you start out as the Dark Knight, you're doing some like, kind of morally wrong things. You're kind of a morally ambiguous character. And you look really cool. I mean, the, the way you start out in that game is amazing. The way Cecil, the main character, looks, he looks amazing. And then you transform into a paladin. You have to fight yourself. There's a part where you have to like climb this mountain and go in a cave and you fight yourself. You fight an exact image of yourself. And then you transform into a paladin and you look silly. Like when you become a pa- when he becomes a paladin his hair is like light purple. It's like whitish purple. And he's in these like flowing kind of like like light yellow tan sort of clothes with like a white cape. I can't I can't remember exactly what he's even wearing, but He's got like a headband with like a crystal in the middle. I don't even know. I mean, the little pixelated character, you can't even tell what he is. And and his like like his portrait in the in the menu looks different than his pixel his little pixelated character. So you can't even really tell what's going on. You can just tell that this really cool dark knight, you know, with almost like you can't see his face. He just has like slits where his eyes are, are and I think there's horns on his helmet. Something like that. He's in cool armor. Totally inhuman. Just this inhuman dark knight. Perfect anti-hero. And then he transforms into this really silly looking character that you don't even know what's going on, but it's like light purple hair. You know, yellow, white clothes, whatever he's wearing, you know, crystals. But he's more powerful. He's a more effective character. He becomes much more of a hero. And as a kid, I didn't like that transformation as much. But I replayed that game in 2018, and I liked it a lot more. And that's just how life becomes cheesy, whether you like it or not. That's why you end up liking the story. You like the rules more, in some ways. But, uh, you know, just Final Fantasy was like realizing that like, oh, I've got to actually play through the game the way you're meant to play through it in order to actually get the most out of the game and the story. And life is that process. So it's like life just mirrors RPGs. Are we living in an RPG? That's my form of the whole stupid simulation. Are we living in a simulation? Are we living in a simulation? Are we living in a simulation? No, we're living in an RPG, dude. Because that's my point of reference. We're living in a Japanese role-playing game, dude. You ever think that life is not like a Japanese role-playing game? You ever think that life is like a Japanese role-playing game? You ever think life is like... Trying to get that accent down. You ever think life is like a Japanese role-playing game? Stupid, just annoying. This is me. I'm turning into the, hey, 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 welcome to my... Yeah, I'm turning into that guy. I am that guy. 
No, but, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you have to break some rules to find out the value of rules, but you can't break all the rules, and there are some rules that you really can't break. So you have to be careful, and that's kind of the first part of the adventure of life is I broke a lot of rules growing up. You know, I wasn't the—I didn't get in the most trouble. You know, even in my group of friends, you know, I wasn't the kid who got in the most trouble, but I broke enough rules. You know, I got in enough trouble as a kid— Got enough. Tr- I broke enough of my own personal rules, even as an as a young adult. Not even that I had my personal rules then, but I I did enough harm to myself. I think mentally and physically that I learned why not to do that. And you can learn why not to do that, but putting it into practice is even harder. And here I am wanting to buy a vape. Here I am running out of my very first vape pen and thinking, I should buy another right now. You know, here I am feeling that way. I should get addicted to nicotine. You know, here I am in that mode. But overall, though, I mean, you, oh, no, I'm I'm going to buy nicotine. I'm going to buy a vape pen because it's part of my catabasis. Because that's the thing to be careful for is you can easily justify making poor decisions by saying, oh, it's, it's part of my catabasic process. You can easily be a jerk-off and be like, oh, I can justify doing anything because it's all part of me figuring out, oh, I have to, do, oh, th- that guy, the school night guy, the school boy, he says that I have to descend into the underworld and break rules to find the value of rules. That's what, uh, when Ted Bundy defended himself in court, he said, oh, I, I was just going through catabasis. I had to break some rules and kill tons of people just to learn the value of human life. I mean, that's sort of the story of war. I mean, you've heard that from people who have been to war, where it's like uh, young men who went to war have written about how they learned the value of human life by going to war and taking human life. But not everybody needs to do that to understand the value of life. Not everybody needs to justify horrible things. Oh, I was just exploring myself. I was just going into a catabasis. Oh, I I bought a vape pen because I was going through a catabasis, and I just, you know, I was exploring that. You know, I don't think buying a vape pen is that bad, and I might do it. I might. But, uh, you know, I, I I can't be permanently doing that. So we'll see. But yeah, it's easy to justify things to yourself. But that said, it's extremely helpful to recognize when you're entering catabasis. And I I ain't a psychologist. I ain't your psychologist. You know, if you're having real trouble, go to your psychologist. Go to somebody else. (laughs) Go to somebody else. But, uh, you know, I know it's helpful for me. And I, and I know, I mean, the same way that like, I would never tell somebody to listen to me about how to quit drinking. Cause I would tell you immediately go to a bar and don't drink, get your friend to invite you to her, get your bartender friend to make you her plus one at her bar's holiday Christmas party where the bar is going to be closed and everybody there is going to be getting shit faced on high-quality hard alcohol, which is your favorite thing in the world, and don't drink and be the designated driver. 
That's what I would tell somebody. That's why you don't listen to me about how to quit drinking, because I'll tell you to literally stick your nose in it. Because that's what worked for me, and and I, I'm not arrogant about it. You know, I'm never arrogant about drinking, because at any point I could suddenly feel the temptation. I haven't, but I could, and I know that. But uh, the reason why I don't tell people to listen to me is because that, that would be my advice, because that's what I did. You don't don't go to me if you want like AA type advice, which I think is extremely good and helpful. Especially, you know, for somebody who doesn't know how to start, who doesn't or, or doesn't know how to stop, doesn't know how to, doesn't know how to initially stop drinking. Like having that kind of support network and that kind of time honored advice is no doubt helpful. Except, you know, my approach, I preach what I need, and what I had to do was I had to be just surrounded by it two weeks after I made the decision to quit. I had to go to an event. I mean, I, I, I agreed to go before I think I even quit drinking or somewhere around there. But I wasn't going to bail on my friend. She wanted me to be her plus one. I didn't even tell her I'd quit drinking because I didn't want her to like not invite me. I didn't want her to feel weird in advance. But when I showed up and just said, oh, I'm not drinking, not drinking, not drinking, I just didn't. And, you know, it wasn't as fun as it could have been if I was drunk. But it it was also glorious. And I think it also started me on the path I'm on, to staying on the path I'm on. So I would say the same thing with, you know, this other stuff where, you know, if somebody is experiencing like what they think is depression, it may not work for you just to be like, oh, I'm entering a, a catabasis, which is a mythological descent into the abyss. They may or may not have a mission or goal. But either way, I'm going to be looking for the randomly appearing exit to get out of the dungeon when it appears. And that might be tomorrow. That might be a month from now. I don't don't know that that's helpful to somebody who has clinical depression. But I don't even know what clinical depression is because that's a placeholder word to me. That's a placeholder world to me. And so I would say, you know, if it's helpful, it's helpful. But I would never say that I... I, this isn't even a disclaimer. I'm just saying that the reality is that I don't know if that's helpful to somebody. And I wouldn't want somebody to bank on what works for me. This isn't me giving advice either. I'm just saying that the last month has been probably the worst I've felt in years. And and then I've realized too, because I've been, I've, not to say I've been complaining to people, but I have occasionally expressed some of my woes to friends and uh, I've had to realize, like, they have their own woes, too. And some of them are worse than mine. In some cases, they're a lot worse. And not that I haven't been self-conscious, not that I haven't been aware of that, not that I haven't been aware of their woes, because I actually listen to their woes a lot. And I genuinely appreciate that. I, I genuinely appreciate that there are human beings in this world who want to share their woes with me, not put their woes on me, but to share them with me. But when I'm expressing my woes, I have to get some perspective too. And then we're in a world of woes. I mean, there's always woes. It sounds like I'm a kid who can't pronounce something. Are you saying rose? What is he saying? Is he saying a world of roses? A world of woes. (laughs) A world of (laughs) roses. 
a world I can't even say it now. I can't even take myself seriously. A world of a world of woe. <laughs> a world of woes. <laughs> That'd be a good thing to start doing just to just to immediately develop a speech impediment where I can't say my Rs. Just now be like world of woes. World of Rose. <laughs> I don't even know what that would be. I don't even know what the World of Rose is. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's just something like we, we're in a world of woes. Like, everybody's gone through winter. Everybody's ha- been more isolated. Everybody's had, everybody's been in some, everybody's been going through something. So it's just something for me to be aware of. It's like, not that I, you know, I think it's good that I can express my woes to people. My, it's it's good that I can express my rose to people. <laughs> uh, expressing my rose, what are you talking about? But I, you know, it's something to be aware of too. It's something I like to keep in check because I'm not someone who typically expresses my woes. I'm not somebody who typically expresses my rose. I just have to I have to move on from that. It's it's we're we're an hour in. It's long enough. I don't need to make this a, an hour and a half. Uh, but uh, the you know, we're all in a world of rose. That's R O S E, not R O W S. That's R O S E. R O E S, rose woes. Oh, you're experiencing the rose woes. Uh, you're ex- <laughs> hey hey hey, welcome to the world of rose. This is actually goodbye, goodbye from the world of rose. You know, if you got to enter the dungeon, do it. Call it what you need to call it. Call it the dungeon. Call it catabasis. Call it the abyss. Call it the big D, the capital D, depression. You know, whatever you need to call it, call it that. You know, but also look for that ladder that randomly appears in different parts of the dungeon that lets you get out. Or maybe it is like an RPG, and sometimes you in a treasure chest you find what's called like the magic rope, which gets you out of the dungeon no matter where you're at. If you find the magic rope, it's an item that you can carry with you wherever you go. You don't even have to use it in this dungeon. Because that happens during catabasis too, is you might not even... it might The ladder might not even come. It might not even be something that... The incline might not even be that straight up, you know, it might just be a gradual incline. And next thing you know, you're on higher ground, you're climbing on higher ground. So you might want to save that magic rope that you found in a treasure chest, that magic rope that will get you out of the dungeon immediately. If you find that magic rope, you might want to save it. Because the reality is you could always be in a worse dungeon than the one you're in now. There's always a harder dungeon, because that's, <laughs> that's something that RPGs teach you, is there's always a harder dungeon until you beat the game. The longest, hardest dungeon with the toughest random battles, the hardest bosses, the mini-bosses that you fight to get the best weapons before you fight the final battle to beat the big boss, you know, all that stuff, it's gonna, that's always the hardest. So it's like you should never assume you're in the hardest dungeon. Like, even me saying the last month is the worst I've felt in a long time, I wouldn't say it's the worst I've ever felt, because it's definitely not. But I'm not going to say it's the worst I'll ever feel. I mean, absolutely not. It's absurd to say that the last month has been the worst I'll ever feel, because it hasn't been that bad. 
So maybe I'm saving my magic rope. Maybe I'm saving my magic rope, but if you're like me, you never end up even using the magic rope in RPGs because you just end up going into that final battle and charging through and beating the game, and you never even bother escaping from a dungeon. You just go through every dungeon. But it is nice to have that magic rope. Just like it's nice to have those elixirs. Even if you don't use those elixirs that restore all your HP and MP, it's nice to have them. I'll never turn down a free elixir. I'll never turn down a free magic rope. I'll never turn down a world of rose. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.